You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. I started looking over your past history and everything. So you're from originally Dalton, Georgia, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I'm from Dalton, Georgia, up there in northwest Georgia. And uh, I actually just spent a week up there getting to see those guys. My whole family's up there. My son lives up there. You know, I'm back there a lot. I've got a friend there in Peachtree City. It's a country music guy, so I'm down in that area to see him quite often as well. Peachtree City is very well known to me. I'm, I'm very familiar with that area. So you graduated yeah. in, uh, what, 2004 from high school? Yeah, I graduated in 2004, and by spring of 2005, I was on my way to boot camp. You went to Paris Island because you're on this side, East Coast and everything. And what did you do after that? For me, the Marine Corps was a way to grow up. I told the recruiters, it's like, you know, I want to, they put these little plates out back then that said, you know, responsibility, discipline, and all these things. And I thought, well, these two right here are what I would like, the responsibility and discipline plate. So that's what I went with. And, and I had a really good recruiter because I was there for five years. I signed up for a five-year contract, and I really just wanted to go to boot camp. Yeah, <laughs> to get the discipline and everything. Exactly, exactly. So I ended up going to boot camp. I was a um, communications guy to begin with. I had this uh, really odd understanding. I thought that, you know, the Marine Corps specifically was a bunch of riflemen, that some were smart enough to get other jobs as well. And uh, so by the time I made it through boot camp, I realized that wasn't the way it was going to work. And what I wanted to be was an infantryman. Gotcha. So I was a communications guy. I spent a year out in 29 Palms. I remember getting off the bus there, seeing a tumbleweed roll by. And believing I was literally in the middle of a, of a Wiley Coyote Roadrunner cartoon. It was the scariest <laughs> thing. I called my mom as soon as I got to a phone and, and told her, I was like, I don't know what I'm in for. We're out it's there. not that bad. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> listen, tumbleweeds are a scary thing to a young George boy, that's for sure. Coming here was like same thing, culture shock. Yeah, because you came where there were trees, right, Kat? Joey went where there no, weren't any trees. Basic training, I went to where there was trees and claustrophobia. And yeah, yeah, I'm sure you were like, oh my gosh, I can see the horizon. <laughs> like, what is going on out here? But, yeah, I grew, up, I grew up in the mountains, so I'd only ever seen the sunset on the water. Outside of that, it's going behind mountains. So, you know, we could get in a whole other conversation about how amazing this continent as a country is. But for a young Georgia boy to kind of finish that part of the story, if you're a year in 29 Palms, and from there, I, I graduated first in my class, and these guys brought me in an office and said, you didn't have the top score, but you did better than everybody in everything. So we're going to give promotion to the top score, and we're going to give you pick of orders. And for all the veterans, they, they get that, which was funny because I was such a, a Georgia boy and so missing the East Coast that all I wanted was Camp Lejeune. And after they said, we'll give you pick of orders, they handed me Hawaii orders and said, oh. this is the first set of Hawaii orders we've had in three years. So we're, you know, take this. This is awesome. And so I I spent the next three weeks trying to get some hillbilly to trade with me. Everyone in my class wanted to go back to the East Coast. Nobody wanted Hawaii orders. So I well, that's crazy. Out in Hawaii. <laughs> and, um, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Um, I didn't need to go back home. And from there, I deployed to Iraq, deployed on ship, and also did quite a few months over in Japan. And I learned about EOD. And that's how I became an EOD tech, about two and a half, almost three years into my career. So where were you at in uh, Japan? In Japan, I was I was on Okinawa. Okay, um, I was birthing at Foster and training at every every one of the bases there along the way. Gotcha. I uh, grew up at some point in Yokohama, so that's why I asked. And I think we spent a little bit of time in Okinawa as well. I don't know if Okinawans call it Japan. It's it's definitely a different culture. Uh, you know, it's not Tokyo, that's for sure. Yeah. But I, I truly enjoyed it. So then you got in the EOD. How long were you in the Marine Corps? You got into the EOD. 
Yeah, so I was in a total of eight years, eight six years. and a half before I got injured. So I was Neo Tech for almost four years. Okay. I did something really odd that doesn't happen a whole lot. I put in my EOD package and got brought in as a 2300, which is a, a non-school trained EOD tech. And then everything got put on pause and I got asked to go on a deployment with a security company. So when I got into country, I just ended up working OJT for that EOD team. So I got Holy to do an, an EOD OJT deployment, which doesn't happen very often. Wow, that had to be like... I don't know. That that sounds like really scary in a way as well. When you start thinking about trying to take apart all these IEDs and bombs and everything and, and doing it OJT wise. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm sure the, the veterans will understand this. You only get to do what you're trained to do most of the time. So I, uh, I helped make charges, drive the robot, and then went out and helped them find the IEDs. I didn't get to take any apart on that deployment, uh, yeah. not on purpose anyway. And, uh, but those guys were really cool. I actually worked with a Navy team even more than the Marine Corps. And I think they were a little bit, maybe even more aware, a little bit more professional because they hadn't done it for six years straight. The Navy only had maybe six teams in the entire RC East at one time. And so the Marine Corps maybe had almost a hundred EOD techs there. So the Navy guys were a little bit more particular. I think they weren't, you know, the new hadn't worn off for them. And I appreciated that. Yeah, I bet. When I was working with the Ranger platoons, like that's all we all we had for our EOD techs were Navy guys. So it's interesting to hear how you said there wasn't the population of them was very small, where the Marines had a ton. And I'm surprised that we they didn't get selected to come and work with us when we were going out there. You guys probably got Navy because the other services were had their hands full with their service in combat operations. So the Marine Corps very rarely supports other services because we don't have enough techs to support the Marine Corps. So that's kind of how that works. The Navy is a special operator community. So the Navy EOD field is actually at some level, I can't remember the, the full acronym, but they fall under their special operations community and they have a lot to do in other places. So it's rare that the Navy can send techs just to hold down a battalion in, in Afghanistan because they've got to be in so many other places supporting either the team guys or other operations. So we did support ODA guys for the Army a few times and we had Army EOD working with us to support Marines. I mean, I mean, in today's war, you don't get a chance to draw service lines very often. It just depends on what higher DOD and the Pentagon feels like you need to be up, what you need to be doing. Well, I imagine there isn't very many EOD techs to begin with. That's why I'm sure they go from branch to branch and they're able to swap. That's just really interesting yeah. how you work, how you're not familiar with working with the Navy, even though it's Marines fall under that branch. For people who don't know, the Marine Corps doesn't fall under the branch of the Navy. We fall under the Secretary of the Navy or the Department of the Navy, but we're a sister service to the Navy. It's so important to point that out. I've spent a long time trying I, to explain I'm a, that. I'm an Army, I'm an Army girl, so I, thank you for pointing yeah. it out to me. Cause I, no, I'm no, so I'm being... <laughs> That's a I'm sore being, point. I feel, I feel like an idiot no, now because no, I'm an Army... I'm a ground pounder. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, not at all. 90% of the people in the military today think that the Marine Corps is a department in the branch of the Navy. But if you actually look at an org chart, and it took me working at the Pentagon to understand it, we have three service secretaries, Navy, Air Force, and Army. And it just happens to be we share a service secretary, not an actual branch. And it's, I mean, I would say 90% of the Marine Corps doesn't know that. And so I guess we don't advertise it either. You know, it's just, it's very odd. You think that you would, you know what I mean? Because I just how they advertise the Marines and the Marines are their own. Like I, I had no idea that the Marines even fell. Well, now under the Secretary of the Navy, but 
Y'all are complicated. <laughs> no, it, it, you're absolutely right. We are. And, and in 1989, the sentiment was we don't need a Marine Corps anymore. And if it weren't for the Gulf War, we wouldn't still have one, not in the capacity we do. Um, it's really odd. When you join the Marine Corps, they tell you we have more specific MOSs than any other service, which is true. But there are certain necessary MOSs we don't have, primarily legal and medical. And for that reason alone, we'll never not fall under the Secretary of the Navy because we need those support assets, and you just can't do it completely segregated. Um, so you're never going to have a Marine Corps without a Navy, and at this point, you're probably not going to have a Navy without some uh, part of the Marine Corps, and that's a good thing. I love it. It's the only two services that truly hold on to their tradition the way they do, and for me, a history nerd, that's what I liked about it. So. I could have found the same jobs and camaraderie in the other two services, but the history that you learned was what was so important to me, and um, it's a lot of fun. I think at the end of the day, the Marine Corps is kind of an upside-down experiment. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You've got each of the other services specialize in just about everything the Marine Corps does, but we do it a little bit differently. We do it with a little bit bigger chip on our shoulder, and most importantly, we do it as a smaller unit, and um, that kind of carves out our little place in the world. And I will tell you that from 2005 to about 2009, we got that confused. And we did a lot of the same things that an occupying force would do. And we got complacent and we weren't as great at our job as we should have been. And thankfully, we got a, both the Secretary of Defense and a Joint Chief and, and a Commandant of the Marine Corps who saw that as a negative thing and, and tried and did a good job of changing it when we did a big push over to Afghanistan, what I call the second war in Afghanistan. That's one thing that I've noticed with the Marines is that regardless of what is going on politically, when they have a stance for something, they just they stand for it, regardless, you know, of what higher ups are saying. And I, you know, I really wish that, like you said, that chip would kind of pass on to the Army as well as the Air Force instead of, you know, just kind of being bullied around about public opinion. One thing that I've noticed working with Marines is that regardless of gender or, you know, the kind of person that you are, a Marine is a Marine is a Marine, and they always stand up for each other. So um, my hat's off to you. Same, same to you. I, I've learned in, in eight years of serving and, in, in, oh, Lord, what are we at? Four years as a veteran serving the veteran and military community. Each service is something unique, but you get what you put into it, right. even in the Marine Corps. Uh, you get out of it what you put into it. And uh, I tell people, I had one bad day, but just that one. And, uh, and every day before and after in the Marine Corps was pretty amazing. And, you know, I've got great friends that are in different Army units, different Navy units, uh, a few in the Air Force. And what I've learned is that those services are just so much bigger that it's specific units that have that history and chip on their shoulder, not the entire service. And that makes sense. I mean, the Army has a place for people who, uh, you know, want to join the National Guard and, and do it, you know, at, at a different scale or, 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 you know, keep intact a civilian life. Whereas, you know, the Marine Corps Reserve is pretty small and, right. and it's not really an accepted part of our culture, even though without Marine Corps Reservists, I wouldn't be here. Um, so so every, there's a place for, for everyone. And, and with 100 percent volunteer force, it's pretty amazing that we can take, you know, Weekend warriors and lifers put them together in a unit, go to Afghanistan and, and kick some tail. So, I, you know, I love being part of this military. So how long was it from the time that you got into the OJT until 2010 when you started serving in the Helmand province? Yeah, so I did my first package for EOD in 2007. By mid-2007, or actually early 2007, um, I was in uh, Iraq uh, behind a machine gun providing security for an EOD unit there, two or three of them. By the end or mid-2008, 
Um, I had a spot in school for EOD school, and I was working primarily with the EOD team as OJT. I came back uh, to Hawaii for a few weeks, uh, actually a few months, and then found my way to Destin, Florida in 2008. Graduated EOD school in early 2009. Oh, I didn't know that's where the school was. So it's down in Destin, Florida. It's it's funny. You can tell. See, the EOD community is very small. When I joined Marine EOD, there were only about 280 of us. To date, there are about 500. And so just in the Marine Corps, in the EOD community, you either know everyone or know of everyone. Because we got men and women that are legends, that were at all the wrong places at all the wrong times. And, And they're forever memorialized. You can go to First EOD Company on Camp Pendleton and you'll see, you know, newspaper clippings and artifacts from my deployment where we lost 11 men and had almost two dozen injured out of 84. Um, and, and that's the most historic deployment in EOD history. And so we're forever memorialized. And I had no clue. It took me four years to gather the gall to return to my unit, my EOD unit. And basically I think it, it, it was a lot of different emotions. And those, those men, especially the ones recently out of school, they looked at me as a legend, and I had no clue. I had no clue whatsoever uh, because we were able to overcome some pretty crazy things on those three deployments, 2000, mid-2010 through early 2012. We, I think we went 7-9 or 7-11 and 9 uh, killed in action those three years, which for our job field is huge. Yeah. And uh, that's not counting the three dozen amputees, most of which were on, on that – late 2010 to early 2011 time frame. So there was, um, but long story short, you run into EOD techs all over the country and, uh, and you've got a few questions. If you watch The Walking Dead, you know they have three questions they ask. We kind of have a few, you know, to find out, did you go to school in Indian Head, Maryland? Or did you go to Destin? Or did you go to the both of them? And that tells you what snapshot in time they, they actually were tech. Oh, wow. Growing up around that area, I actually am from Pensacola or a little town outside of there. I had no clue. I know the Air Force is there. I know, of course, the Navy is there. And, of course, there's going to be Marine Corps with the Navy and a lot of the schools and training that goes on in that area as as well. But I had no clue that the EOD school was actually in Destin, Florida. I mean, it's a resort area. It's where people go to enjoy family vacations on the Gulf of Mexico. Had no clue. It's in Pensacola, obviously, has a lot of our aviation. And over in Panama, the Navy has most of their dive training. So it's kind of crazy what's hidden in these. Yeah. Um, I tell people that the Gulf Coast there is it's bracketed by age. You go to Panama, you've got your high school spring breakers. Yep. You make your way over to um, Destin. It's more your college crowd. And then you keep going over to Pensacola. You're at the end of your career. And by the time you make it to Gulf Shores, you're you're in full retirement. And then that's kind of how the Gulf Coast works there. <laughs> I would say you're pretty dead on for that area, for sure. And, and there are a lot of uh, retirees, obviously, within that area. And that's the reason why we landed there. My father was in the Navy for 23 years. And it's the reason why we ended up that spot, yeah. because it was Whiting Field, which is in a little town out, you know, outside of Pensacola where people start their flight training. So uh, very familiar with that environment. And Destin used to be a little sleepy fishing village way back in the day. It's exactly. amazing what it looks like now. Wow, it's <laughs> and crazy. And, you know, just to capstone this conversation about the different services and how we work well together, EOD school is actually on a piece of property owned by Eglin Air Force Base. Okay. Um, behind Blue Water Bay. Sure. It's an old bombing range. So the Air Force owns it. All right. The Navy runs it. It's called Navy School EOD. Uh, the Navy actually runs the school. The Army funds it. The Army puts about 1,000 students a year. They graduate about 680. Um, they have a really high attrition rate for different reasons. And then the Marine Corps is kind of the, 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 the only ones in the entire field that can take live ordnance and inert it. 
So they kind of at the schoolhouse, especially that's a really important skill. So you have all four services coming together, uh, each with a huge role to play. So we call the um, the EOD field. And I guess the best way to say this is fatherless children of the military, because even when we get back to our service, we don't we don't belong to a unit and we don't belong to ourselves, especially in the Marine Corps. We belong to the support side, but we deploy in our task by the line unit. We are an autonomous company within the Marine Corps. Uh, we have three ground companies. We have three base supports. We have four or five wing supports, and then that's your EOD field. Uh, wow. in, the, in the Navy, similar with their, uh, I can't remember what they're called right now, mobile units. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Air Force is a little bit different. There's so much ordnance in the Air Force and so much explosive hazards that their entire engineer community, the EOD is kind of a specialized branch of their overall engineer community. And then the Army, of course, with all the ground ordnance they have, ground and air-to-ground, you, you got to be spun up pretty well, and, and they keep pretty busy. And that's why they need so many EOD techs is they have these massive units of artillery and, and various types of ground-to-ground and ground-to-air ordnance that need to be um, uh, – or air-to-ground uh, that need to be um, maintenanced. And, and every time they go out to the range and do live fire, the Army EOD is pretty, pretty busy for a while. So you got a chance to get your tan on and everything in Destin <laughs> and go through the EOD school at the same time frame. What happened after that? Where was uh, the first place that they sent you? Yeah, you have to cut me short. I'm a bit of a storyteller. That's right. No, it's all good. <laughs> Actually, um, again, I, I had the chance to graduate first in my class and uh, got choice of orders, and I was recruited into MARSOC, Marine Special Operations sure. Command, myself and three others. Um, one of the four of us had family issues and couldn't do it. The other two were prior recons, so they fit right in. And uh, before, between getting orders out of Destin and landing at Camp Pendleton, California, we lost so many Marine EOD techs, either to injury or killed in action, that they didn't let me uh, follow that MARSOC path. Pulled me and, and one of the other guys back to the company because they needed all the bodies they can get. We actually raided our wing unit and our base unit as well. So if anything would have happened with the air wing or the base, they would have had maybe three guys to respond instead of nine <laughs> or 18. Yeah. Um, and so I, I went to Camp Pendleton, California, and was told basically as soon as we can get you to Afghanistan, you're going to be there. And that's how it happened. Um, and some other pretty monumental things happened in my personal life that were compounded by that expediency uh, to deploy. Such as? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. You ask, I'll tell. Um, <laughs> I'm a true Marine uh, in every sense of the fashion. Well, you I'm like teed it all up. You got me all excited there. You set the bait out. So. Oh, absolutely. I know. I'm like just sitting here like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so to set the stage, when I landed in Destin, Florida, yeah. I couldn't get, take my spot in school for almost six weeks, so I needed something to do. So I found that working at the local Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, greeting people as they come in the door, uh, gave me both the reason to keep in good shape and also to meet people. Um, most of those Abercrombie and Fitch employees were 18 and worked at the Hooters down the street, <laughs> so I had a great rapport with. Uh, so we would have these house parties because the Marines in the Marine Corps, you have to be in service for three years. You have to be 21 years old. You have to... Um, uh, there's a couple more competency things, but you have to lap move from another job into EOD. The other three services have a, a way to come in off the street and become the EOD tech. But the only right. reason the Marine Corps segregates it that way is it costs us about a quarter million dollars to send somebody through school. So if we send somebody through school, we're going to know they're going to pass. So our sure. attrition rate is about 6% most years. Um, and it doesn't mean we're great at it. We send the least amount of people. We're just very, very particular on who gets to go because we don't want to waste that money. We don't have it to waste. So in the Marine Corps, we have we live out off base in houses instead of 
in barracks because we're of a higher rank and been in longer. Um, so we have these parties and we have fun. I had a party and Facebook was just becoming a thing. And for the first time in my Marine Corps career, I was six hours instead of 16 or 36 hours from home. And, uh, and so I invited people back in Dalton, Georgia to come down. I bet. And only, only one person took me up. And uh, she was a friend from, from the, the good old days. And I, but anyway, long story short, she came down for a Halloween party in 2009. And I didn't speak to her again until she called me on Halloween 2010 to tell me her three-month-old son was mine. And, um, and so I look back and I think, man, you know, if I'd have known that I had a kid on the way, would I have chosen the, the next unit to deploy on probably the most dangerous deployment we'd ever have on the other side of the country? So I made a lot of decisions that took me away from that, uh, from that son that I just found out I had. So that was a struggle. And, and I used that a lot because that's, I tell people sacrifice in the military starts before you ever make it to the battlefield. Generally speaking, right. what happens on the battlefield makes a whole lot of sense. You're going to war, people will die. But it's the battles you fight here at home before and after that, that really are so hard to figure out. And um, so I had, I had been notified of my son and was quickly on my way to Afghanistan. So that was quite the experience. But really what it did is it, it gave me something to look at while on deployment on this really tough deployment, um, it gave me a reason to go, you know what, I'm not going to take that risk if I don't have to. I'm going to be extra careful today. I'm not going to get complacent. I've got someone to go home to that needs a dad. Sure. And there was a turning point even in my deployment where I, I went from hungry for that next IED to work to thinking in terms of, okay, I made it through the day without working. You know, that was good. I've only got 98 more of these days left. And, uh, until I get to go home to my son. And um, so that's quite the feeling to have. It's, it's, it was new to me, that's for sure. And so for those with a household uh, that have done so many deployments with the wife and kids or husband and kids back home, my hat's off to you. I know that that feeling is, is a whole nother battle um, to go through. You know, just realizing that like you're instantly, you mature, you know, beyond your years. And it's like the same with me. Like I deployed when my daughter was two, that was my second deployment and the men mentality I had was much different. You know, you kind of, yeah. you take things more seriously because it's not just you anymore. So, so had you even met your son before deploying or was just, just, was that news to you? No, I, she called me and, um, it's a long story and I don't want to villainize her. She was younger than me. She was only 18 when she got pregnant and she was just scared. You know, she was very scared. She didn't know what to do. She knew that I had a big budding career. And, um, and so, when she called me to tell me about him, I said, all right, well, you know, you've kind of lied to me, so I'm not going to just take your word for it. I need to come home and get a paternity test. So I got that call in October, and we were working up to deploy May 15th. And so uh, we got, I got the call in October, and I wasn't able to go home because of training until Christmas. And I didn't want to spend too much time around him because I didn't want to get attached. I, I knew I would. And so I, I saw him long enough to do a paternity test. I went back, and I started the resident professional development course on January 3rd. And got an email on January 6th that said, this kid is 99.9999% yours. Like, he's pretty much you. And, um, and so on January 6th, I still believe that was deploying May 15th. So that course ended February 24th, and I jumped on a plane. When I landed on the 25th, I got a call that two more of our guys had gotten rocked, and I had to deploy March 15th instead of May 15th oh, wow. to fill the gap. So I had, you know, with February being the shortest month, on the 25th, I only had a a few days before I had to report back and, and get everything good to go. So I spent that entire time with him. 
we went to a lawyer. I paid the lawyer and said, you're not my lawyer. You're not hers. You're Braden's lawyer. You're my son's lawyer. Help us figure this out, you know. So we did name change, child support, and custody right there. And um, we were very amicable. And, and our goal the whole time was to make it best for the son. And that's what we've done. So he's he's here right now. He's here for the summer, you know. And, and so we, we share time with him, and, and we're just raising him the best we can. Um, I'm glad you got to spend time with him before you left because I, I couldn't imagine – knowing that and then just jumping on a plane you know that would just rock my brain <laughs> so. <laughs> it was um there was a lot of opportunity to let it have a negative but it really was a positive it, it really saved my life sometimes of, you know thinking hey he's there waiting for a dad and um and so yeah i did the six months uh almost seven i think in afghanistan from early march till late august or maybe that was almost six and uh Towards the end of the deployment, we had we had had a rough deployment. Midway through, we lost a couple of guys, had a couple of guys get amputated. Now I remember thinking at that point, um, a couple of EOD guys working in other areas. I remember the 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 night I got the call that Dave Lyons had lost his legs, who who was one of the guys I trained with. I jumped up, and went out, and ran around the flight line, or, or actually as a helo pad on our little Hesco fob, and I ran till my feet just blistered and bled because I, I remember thinking. You know, you might not get this chance again, and um, and I remember that. I very, very, very explicitly remember that. And it took a few more months before I was put in a situation where I, I lost my legs. And the moment I lost my legs, I, I went into survival mode. You know, um, it was, do I have a knee? Uh, you know, because that's huge. And and kind of thinking in those terms, I reached up to fill my lips when I got hit, and my hand stayed in my lap, but my arm came up, and my forearm was completely blown apart. And I remember thinking very um, kind of calmly, man, that really sucks. I want to keep my hands, you know. I got to keep my arms big so I can get around. And uh, so I'd already at that point accepted the fact I lost my legs because there was a time where it felt like it wasn't if but when. And when, how bad. And then after I got injured, it, it kind of started a snowball rolling downhill. We had a lot of guys uh, injured and killed. And I became sort of a leader within the ward up there because – we had 50-some-odd Marines up there, and almost a dozen of them or over a dozen of them were Marine EOD techs. So um, it, we were a large percentage of the population compared to only being a few hundred in the, the 180,000 Marine Corps. So the, the tightness of the field tightened up pretty well, and it became a fraternity uh, within a fraternity. And the EOD community at large was the, was the lion's share of those injured. So even the other services were there with us. And uh, there's guys like Taylor Morris, I'm sure you've heard of, a Navy EOD tech. And so, uh, you know, there's John, uh, John Hayes that was up there for a year battling MRSA and, and flesh-eating infection. That, that was my teacher in school. And I'm standing there on my prosthetic legs feeding him with a milk can or with a little milk, you know, straw. And, and that's how we took care of each other through about a year of recovery. And so I was injured August 6, 2010. And by July 2011, I had recovered, gotten on my legs, and was working on Capitol Hill. And uh, that's another story, Lord help. <laughs> So you, let's take us back to that day because, I mean, you say August 6th. You were there. You had, at that point, I think, if I understand correctly from what I had read, cleared somewhere over an 80, 80 IEDs and several more bombs outside of that. And actually, I think, if I understand it, uh, you had just diffused about 40 bombs in five days. So, I mean, you guys were, like, really plowing through all these IEDs. And then was it that you leaned up against a wall or something? When we got to Afghanistan in 2010, people really need to understand the way this whole deal shook out 
we went into Afghanistan and cleaned house early on. By 2003, we had won that war. So in 2003, we went to Iraq in our, our focus shift. And so from 2003 till 2008, the war was in Iraq. And we had guys in Afghanistan, but we weren't doing what you'd call a full court press. And for the EOD community specifically, those two wars were completely different wars. The, the types of ID, IEDs, the types of explosives initiators, the electronic components, everything was very different in Afghanistan compared to Iraq. So essentially what happens in 2008 or nine, I can't remember now, I think it was nine, the president sent about 40,000 troops to Afghanistan, most of which about 30,000 were Marines. So literally what we did is we packed up our Marine EOD support in Iraq and moved it to Afghanistan. And we didn't have a chance to train or identify the different threats in Afghanistan. So we were learning on the fly. And what Afghanistan, what the Taliban realized that the Al-Qaeda did not, was that the most sophisticated way to outsmart us was to make your IED so simple that by the time we found them, we were, we were setting them off. So they had what, a simple loop circuit, which is like the way a flashlight looks. You, you have a circuit that's just basically a loop of wires with a battery pack on one side and your main charge on the other. You put a brake for your switch. Instead of making that switch, you know, all this crazy electronic componentry that could go bad, you make it really simple. You make it a, a pressure switch. So you have your positive lead on top, your negative lead on bottom, foam separating the two, and when you step on it, they touch and set it off. Well, they even got so sophisticated that they could make everything but the power pack out of non-metallic components. And we use the metal detector to find these IEDs. So you can imagine if you run your power source 20, 30, 50 yards away, and your IED, you know, your, your boom and your, your pressure switch to step on is right there stacked in the road. If you just sweep up and down that road, you're going to have a bad day before your metal detector goes off. So we had to get pretty inventive. We had to learn from each other. We had to write these reports, 5, 10, 15 pages, even if it wasn't an IED, even if we just got called out for a lug nut in the middle of the road so that we could share information. So I carried around the Internet in a briefcase, which was actually a couple of big boxes, and, and Marines hated me for it. But I was able to get information on every IED that had been worked in my area. And what we learned was that these, these non-metallic IEDs were the worst. And um, so we'd put out information to try to trick the Taliban. And it was a chess game. If we swept our way over footbridges, then they would start putting IEDs at the, on the other side of a footbridge so that you'd, you, you wouldn't be able to sweep to it. If we started jumping the canal instead of using footbridges, they would put the IEDs on the most narrow part of the canal. So when we jumped, we'd land on it. They were guessing where we would go. We would guess what they would guess, and we'd try something different, and they'd figure that out. And it was back and forth. So um, the, the terrain in Afghanistan, you're not driving trucks. If you're not driving trucks, you lose your robots. If you lose your trucks, you also you lose your ECM, your RC countermeasures. So they started using garage door openers again to set it off. And so it was a constant um, figuring, it, figuring it out. The Marines there, when you think about it, I went through a year of sophisticated schooling and multiple other schools to learn you know, the theory behind nuclear physics and everything else to be a bomb tech. These Marine grunts, they, they got a PowerPoint class and went, went to war, and they were doing an amazing job finding IEDs, not you know doing something stupid to set them off, calling us, setting a coordinates, understanding how the enemy may set these IEDs off and trying to alleviate that before we got there. And so you know I worked with a unit 2-2 from the East Coast uh, that was that – was, they were hard chargers. And then I worked with unit 3-1 they hadn't deployed since, um, since, you know, 2000, I want to say seven, they were all brand new. And so we were the, we were the salty guys there when they got there midway through the deployment. And, um, and so we had to train them up and 
So long story short, after a season of fighting, getting blown up and shot at every day, we went down to take a town called Safar Bazaar, which was known for bad things and bad people trafficking through. It was a bazaar, a, a trading village. And we thought, looking down from Falcon View, we thought there was a, a hotel. We called it the Taliban Hotel. But once we got there, we realized it was a storage building. So we spent about five days clearing all the streets, taking the town. We had to fight for a day or two. And I found there were three EOD teams and 300 Marines. An EOD team in, in Afghanistan in 2010 were two men, um, as opposed to three or four, like you'd see in Hurt Locker. Um, no, bo- no bomb suits, very rarely with the robots. It was all hand tools, metal detectors. And, uh, and so in, three day, in, in five days, our three teams worked 38 IEDs. 36 of them were me because of where just I got put. I had one team in reserve, one team clearing a Kazavak route, and I had the lion's share of the town. The sixth morning, we worked the 37th IED, and, um, and my teammate, who had, had literally had a nervous breakdown midway through the deployment, uh, was, was, was trying to work you know, hard and, and making mistakes, unfortunately. He um, picked up a Lutu rocket flare, which is this giant, like six-foot-long candle in the sky, and moved it back behind a wall. He moved it out of the storage facility and back behind a wall because we had found some IED components in the storage facility that sixth morning that were a little bit brand new to the entire country, and we needed to get good documentation on what these were. And he picked it up and moved it, thinking it was spent. But I had worked a problem in EOD school, and I knew these Lutu rocket flares could be deceiving. So I walked over behind the wall, shined a flashlight in it to make sure the clockwork mechanism wasn't engaged. And um, I turned around, put my gear back on, and took a step off from the wall. And there was an IED right underneath me that we had never found. And um, for expediency, you, you develop uh, operating procedures that aren't the safest but get the job done. So we had decided if you could sweep an area three times, it's clear and treat it as such. And so that area had been swept twice, and I swept it on the third time. We just never found this IED. And so I stepped on it, and as they say, the rest is history. What a remarkable story, because I mean, when you start talking about the limited resources and capabilities that you had and what you're dealing with, it just seems like a guy with A&S <laughs> sticking it in the same kind of thing. I mean, you're that that must have been very difficult trying to go through all those uh, IEDs. And of course, um, hats off to you, as many as you guys have done and they're still doing today. It's just very Absolutely. remarkable. We yeah, Our numbers, we were right at 80, probably closer to 100 when you count the IEDs we did. We never turned in a report for, and four, well, three years before that, that would have been astronomical numbers. By the time I reached, you know, 80 to 100 IEDs, that was par for the course. We had, um, and to understand the difference for the EOD community, we would send two three-man teams, so six EOD techs that would rotate back and forth to Al-Assad in Iraq, and they would cover that entire RCT. They would cover, you know, thousands of Marines operating. And they would respond in a vehicle. And they would swap back and forth 24-hour shifts. When we got to Afghanistan, the terrain didn't allow that. We didn't have air support to fly guys around. So what we had to do was take and put a two-man team with every individual company. So the amount of EOD techs we had in country quadrupled. Uh, you know, we had you know, 10, 12 EOD techs per battalion instead of three per regiment. And so that, that really changed things a lot. It meant two things. One, it meant we were working a lot more. Two, it meant more of us were going to get hurt and injured uh, because we added EOD techs. We were in a more kinetic war, 
And then on top of all that, we took away resources like bombsuit and robot, which we never really used bombsuit to begin with, but it definitely wasn't an opportunity to use it once you didn't have your truck to haul it there. And the robot was the big, big Achilles heel. You know, the robot kept a lot of EOD techs alive for a long time. And when you get in a situation where you're walking into an IED six clicks through uh, poppy fields, you can't carry that robot, you know. Sure. Um, and so that, that changed things a lot. So your story didn't end there because you got, you've got this remarkable kind of never quit attitude and approach to things because not only did you learn to survive with both of your legs gone and dealing with the, the trauma and everything from that, but I mean, you went on from there and as I understand it, you picked up the phone or wrote a letter to Boot Campaign, which is now where you work and said, hey, listen, I, I love your story. I love what you guys are doing and so tell us about that how you you ended up where you are today absolutely thanks for asking i'm very passionate about what we do here at boot campaign the way it all started like i said earlier i got injured early on in a group of of marine soldiers sailor and airmen that that really blew the the walls off the place at walter reed and bethesda when they were two different facilities they weren't prepared for the amount of injuries that they were of horrible injuries that amputations that they were going to have to um, facilitate. And the way it worked back then was Marines and sailors went to Bethesda, and there's where I believe that the best doctors and nurses were. But then all the prosthetic rehabilitation was over at Walter Reed, where the Army and Air Force was at. And that was across town. One's in Silver Spring, one's in Bethesda, Maryland. And what, what happened there is you didn't start your prosthetic rehab as a Marine or a sailor until you got to Walter Reed three to six months into your recovery. So you didn't get to see these guys and gals walking around using prosthetics. You didn't have that morale boost that the soldiers and airmen had. So I commandeered a handicapped bus, got a driver to help us out. Every Thursday evening, I would take as many amputees as would go with me from Walter Reed back to Bethesda and would visit room to room and tell these guys, listen, stay in there because you're going to be us here in just a month or two. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. And it helped the guys in the beds, but it really helped the families. And even the nurses got to see the fruit of their labor. And so that was recognized that ended with like dinner with the president and those kinds of things. And that sparked inside of me a want and a need to, to be an advocate for those men and women getting injured, especially those uh, that, that I deployed with or were in my job field that I knew real well. And so I, I volunteered at a few organizations and found myself convincing Chairman Jeff Miller, uh, who ironically enough represents the first district of Florida, Panama to Pensacola. Um, I found myself convincing him at 8th and I Marine Corps barracks to let me come intern at the House Veterans Affairs Committee, which was great, except for I didn't tell the Marine Corps about it. So this was about a year after my injury, uh, during the latter part of my recovery, you're really waiting on paperwork to, fit, to catch up to you. So I went and bought a suit, typed up a resume, and that was on a Friday night. That Monday, I showed up on Capitol Hill, turned in my resume and said, I think you guys should give me an internship. And they said, sure. And so I was working there for about two months when, uh, and to understand how this works, all services actually put junior officers in members' offices to fellowship and, and create an instant connection there. And you have a colonel in charge of those Marines. He had no clue I was up there working every day. I'm active duty. I go and do my uh, recovery from seven to nine at nine. I'd put on a suit, drive over to Capitol Hill and pretend to be a civilian all day. And uh, finally, um, about the time the colonel in charge of the Marines that were appointed to do it found out about me, this rogue sergeant, the, the chairman called the commandant and said, man, we sure do love having Johnny Jones up here. Thanks for letting us have him. 
And, uh, and so they kind of had to play damage control and let me stay. Um, and that's where my advocacy started. Sure. And while, while doing that, I started school at Georgetown University and, and, and was an advocate as a student there. And I was looking for a more consolidated purpose because I knew my time on Capitol Hill would come to an end. And I found boot campaign through a commercial on the radio. And Joe Nichols, a country music singer, was talking about these five ladies that started an awareness campaign to wear combat boots, to show your support for the military, and were so successful at it that they could raise money and were giving that money uh, to other nonprofits doing good work. And I thought, you know, I've acted in the movie Lincoln. I've got, you know, I've been working in NASCAR in my off time. I've got these contacts on Capitol Hill. I can bring some celebrities to this cause and, and help them out. And that's kind of how it started. I wrote them an email, said I want to volunteer. That was in 2011. By 2013, I was on staff part-time out of the Marine Corps. I had gotten married. That's a whole other part of my story. My wife and I were both dedicated to serving. And, um, and I got a call, said, hey, if you want to move out here when you graduate school, we'd love to have you as a leader in the organization. So July 2014, I graduated Georgetown. And my wife and I moved here to Austin, Texas, Georgetown, Texas specifically. And by 2015, I was uh, a co-executive director. And now we're organized where we have a CEO, I'm the COO, and we have three other executives that are a part of this team leading about 20 people. And last year, I think we brought in $4.1 million with um, 83 cents on every dollar right back out the door specifically to our programs four cents on every dollar going towards raising more money and 13 or less cents going towards our operations. So we're very, very proud of that. And the programs we have are uh, centered on aiding and transitioning either from war back home or from military service into civilian life. And they're aimed at filling the gaps, working on Capitol Hill, volunteering with leading nonprofits, setting across the table while these nonprofits advocate to D.C., I know what both the VA and leading nonprofits provide. And more importantly, I know what isn't being provided out there. And that's what we focus on at Boot Campaign. Also, some of the things that they do at Boot Campaign is they're an organization built on transparency. So, I mean, you can go out to their website and you're going to see what you just described right there in charts and everything else, because they want everybody to know if you're going to contribute a dollar, this is where it's going to go. And and for a lot of organizations out there that are nonprofit, you've got to do a lot of homework in order to figure that out. But for boot campaign, they make it very easy on the folks who want to contribute. Yeah. and, And so here's the deal. We've got five ladies that started this. None of them have ever pulled a salary. As a matter of fact, between the five of them, they've got quite a bit of money invested to get this thing started. Um, outside of that, what's important for us is we do an outside audit every single year. It's where most organizations do on an every three-year basis. I can't spend a dollar on behalf of this organization when I don't have a conversation about it. I send in a physical receipt to my finance lady. Every week, every month, I send in a pack of receipts. We're not, we're not spending money if we don't have to unless it's going to our, our mission. And for an organization that's in the limelight, working with the top celebrities in each genre, for those five ladies to say, you know what, we have this idea, we've made this, but it's not right for us to be the face. It's not right for us to even run it. Here, you know, Joey Jones, military veteran, combat veteran, amputee, you're the right person to be a part of this organization. That means a lot to me. They saw that. They saw that they didn't want the attention. They wanted the attention to go to the men and women they're serving. 
so much so that, that our demographic, the people we're trying to service, is who's helping run the organization and myself. That's a big deal, and it's not common. If it is common, it's usually some general looking for a second retirement. That's exactly uh, right. And, and that's, yeah. that's not to say they don't do good work. I'm no, I get, I, I get what you're saying. But, but you yeah. know, it's, sure. it's uncommon. It definitely is. So of the five women, did any of them serve or are they military spouses? No, and that's what's so amazing about this. None of them have a direct connection to the military. And some people may criticize that, but what that means is they are who we're trying to reach. We want every American out there to say, you know what, I don't have a reason to support the military right in my face, but I have a million reasons to support the military, and that's all these freedoms. If I enjoy bowling, I can think those men and women serving that I get to just decide one day I want to go bowling or to be a doctor or to be a lawyer or to be a truck driver. I mean, the freedoms we have in this country aren't just those freedoms that you see uh, debated on on punditry and television. It's the ability to get up in the morning and choose what you're going to do that day and how you're going to spend your time. Unfortunately, it's even the, the ability to say, I don't feel like working. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's positive and negative, but it's freedom. And, and that's what's so important. And all we're trying to say is that no matter where you fall in the political spectrum or anything like that, you have a freedom to make that choice, and it's supported and defended by these men and women. You are quite the role model for individuals out there, especially those veterans who have been injured. And I know you go around all over the country speaking at different engagements. Have you had a lot of opportunity to give back to Bethesda and to Walter Reed and stop by there occasionally through your travels and just say, hey, guys, I'm, I'm living the dream, and this is, you know— this is kind of something that you can do, too, is that there's another chapter in your life. The book's not complete. The way I stay connected, honestly, when I was at Walsh Reed and Bethesda, there was a problem with too many people. I mean, I had books, literally books of business cards, and I was just trying to recover and feel better. I didn't have time to talk to you about how awesome your nonprofit was or how awesome. And so I am very, very sensitive to that in what we do at Boot Campaigns. So one of the programs we have is called the Hero Ambassador Program. We get service members, a lot of them are injured, not all of them, and veterans to be our voice in our face. And it's not um, it's not anything other than providing them a platform to, to tell their story and to guide us in how we provide support. Almost all of those hero ambassadors are, um, you know, people that I've recovered with or seen along the way, and I bring them into our fold. And, and I'm a big fan of instead of barely touching a thousand people, I want to touch one person a thousand times. I want to go long and deep with that person and bring them to a new place in life. So that's how we do with our dozens of your ambassadors. That's how I stay connected to that community. I, um, I'm a Fox News analyst, so I speak on Fox News on military and veterans issues. And, uh, and I try to represent my generation of veteran that way. And then in my public speaking, um, you know, any military, uh, law enforcement, public service or, or um, public school uh, that, that, calls me, I'm going to try to make it, you know, obviously free of charge and, and share my story that way and stay connected to the community that way. And, and the amazing thing about Boot Campaign, I volunteer and support a handful of other organizations. And as, an, as, as a nonprofit, we support dozens of other organizations. So I have the ability to go out and support the things I believe in and um, in, in my board and my boss want me to do so. What's next for Johnny Joey Jones? I got the feeling this is going to be like, you know, the Olympics or something's coming up. There's got to be something huge here. You just seem so driven. <laughs> a book. I'm working on a memoir. Um, yeah. You know, I'm really good friends with Marcus Luttrell and Taya Kyle. I barely knew Chris. So I won't pretend to have known him any better. I met him twice before he was killed, but I've gotten to be a really close friend to Taya since. 
And I've looked at, you know, American Sniper and Lone Survivor. That's not my book. I, I've got some great war stories, but, you know, the, the important part of my book would be the personal life side um, that, that kind of Chris touches on a little bit. And everything has happened since my injury and how you can take something so negative and turn it into a positive if you choose. Every bit of adversity I've ever faced was an opportunity to become a better person. You know, since getting since losing my legs, I've acted in an Academy Award film. I've been a spotter for a NASCAR team. I've been a fellow on Capitol Hill before I got my degree. Um, I've graduated from Minor Ivy School. And those aren't Joey Jones accomplishments. Those are accomplishments that a group of people allowed me to act out through supporting me and believing in me and giving me an opportunity that I might not have gotten otherwise. So if I can write a book that puts those things to paper, you know, real quick, my wife was my high school sweetheart. She broke up with me uh, back in 2004 or five and, uh, and, and didn't want anything to do with me. It took me almost 10 years to convince her I was the best thing that ever happened to her. And, uh, and so we started <laughs> talking again on that deployment as just friends. Right. And when I got hurt, her number was the only one I had memorized. So in my medicated stupor, I made her promise to come visit me at Walter Reed. And she packed a bag for three days. And three years later, she was still there when we got married. So there are a lot of cool aspects that, that make the man I am today that I feel like other people deal with. And if they can look and say, hey, this dumb boy from Georgia can just put his nose to the grind and figure it out, then I surely can. And uh, there are a lot of people out there who are poised with much tougher circumstances than merely losing your legs. I don't know what it's like to have a terminal illness or cancer or other things that, that people deal with every day that I draw inspiration from. Uh, so if I can write a book about these things and other people can gain from it, I'd be happy. Well, and it's a remarkable story. And the fact that you are an inspiration, you're just a walking, living inspiration is very cool, too. And when it comes to this show, I mean, Mentors for Military, that's really what we're all about is trying to mentor other veterans or those on active duty still. So really cool story. And I think that what it does state, even not about just the, the physical struggles that you went through and the challenges that you've met, but it's really a cool story that says you can kind of be anything you want to be in to some degree if you put your mind and heart into it and find that passion and kind of move forward. It, it's a really good you know story in that aspect as well. Oh, I just wanted to commend you on you know what you had just said about you know writing your story on after the fact, and you know I think especially for people who don't know, they like the the blood and guts and gory and what happened overseas and yeah, there all the I cool was in, stuff. That, yeah, there I was in the Valley of Death type of stories and yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, like no, the, yeah, and, there I was. Great, but what you're doing, like your memoir is going to, I mean, just your story after the fact is going to inspire so many veterans, you know, to get up and, and get out of that hole. And, you know, just that there there is a light at the end of the tunnel, like you said, and that there are people that do believe in them, like yourself, like giving people the opportunity. So I just commend you on highlighting that and and putting that aspect of your story out there, because that, I think, is what matters, is what happened after the fact. So thank you so much. That is just incredible. I appreciate that. And, and, and I brought up Marcus and Chris because, you know, they have those remarkable stories in war that are unparalleled. Yeah. And, I, and so my point is I'm not going to try to parallel an unparallelable story I'm going to draw inspiration from that. And and I found that I think the most remarkable thing in my story isn't, you know, finding the biggest cache in, in war history or the largest minefield, two, 207 IEDs in Safar Bazaar, two square kilometers. 
those things happen. They'll get trumped again. And, 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 you know, those are war stories that, that are repeatable, but, um, the uniqueness of my story is my son, Braden, my wife, Meg, and the friends I've made and, and how people of all political and, 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 and entertainment areas have come together to support me and, and our military in general. And, um, and that's the story I think I want to tell. And, I want people to look at it and say, at the end of the day, we're all people in this together, and uh, we don't make it without some help. Sounds like you're making yourself true to yourself. I mean, you're you're wanting to make sure that you stay true to who you are, what you were, you know, how you ever you were brought up, and and I again, I commend you for that because it would be very easy for someone to be caught up in the, you know, what's going on around them in the environment and take a totally different spin on this. So the fact that you're an inspiration, what you do at Boot Campaign, how you're going about telling that message and what they're doing and how they're benefiting veterans. It's just a, all a really feel-good uh, story. Uh, again, it's really remarkable. How can people get in contact or find more about Boot Campaign and contribute? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So go to bootcampaign.org. Follow us on Facebook, Boot Campaign. And then Instagram and Twitter is at Boot Campaign, B-O-O-T-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N. Um, and we're out there, you know, we're on, uh, we're on Snapchat now. So we're hit, you know, boot underscore campaign. So we're all over social media, our website, bootcampaign.org. And, uh, just, just check out the events page on our website, check out our programs. Um, it's very important to us that, you know, before you see donate, you say, re- apply for assistance. You know, we're there to, to assist mo- first and foremost. Um, and we have all kinds of fun things we're doing around the country, uh, to get people active. You know, the premise of what we do is, buy a pair of combat boots, all the money we collect from selling the combat boots funds our assistance programs. But then you have an ornament on your feet to walk around and show people that you support the military. And it's conversation starters. We have executives in business suits with boots on. We have country music stars wearing boots on stage uh, to show their support for the military. And um, so we're an awareness campaign. We're an assistance campaign. Uh, We partner with other organizations. If you've got a great idea, write in, let us know about it. If you need help, write in, let us know about it. And that's what we're here for. You know, we can't service everyone, but we're going to service everyone that asks us and, and is deserving of it. And and before I get done here, I want to say thank to both of you uh, for serving in, in obviously different ways, both uh, in the military and then servicing uh, this community outside of the military, and uh, having the courage to put yourself out there and, and be a voice for a community of people that need it. Uh, so thank you both for um for all the questions and praise today and for doing what you do with this show. Well, thank you. I think that's what it's all about really is service. And it's some of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is finding your way after you got, get out to try to find a way to give back in service. It's one of the things that you mentioned in the very beginning, you know, of coming in and certain things that you wanted to do in serving your country. Don't forget that when you get out, continue serving in some way. I think you'll find that same satisfaction of serving within the military on the outside. And you've certainly done that. You're a living testament to it. So again, I really appreciate you taking time to come and join us today, Joey. It's been fantastic. I hope we get a chance to talk with you again in the future. And especially after your book comes out and talk about the road show and we're on that list and such. So, uh, cause it's been great getting to know you today. Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, consider me a friend if I can ever do anything for you. Uh, Let me know. It's been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate this effort. Thank you so much. Please be sure to follow us at iTunes, leave a rating, and your comments. And if you don't have an Apple product, no worries. You can follow us at SoundCloud, download the app. And if you're on Twitter, be sure to follow us there at Mentors, the number 4 M-I-L.